Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, grab your Bibles, if you would. Let's go to John uh, chapter 3. Very familiar passage of Scripture uh, for many of you and and a verse that I think all of us will be familiar with at some point we'll get to uh, today. As you're turning, let me just tell you, a couple of months ago, my wife and I uh, had the privilege of, of going to the White House Uh, to be a part of a pastor's gathering where there was going to be some update from the administration on how uh, they're working uh, for the church and and getting some things happen uh, there in D.C. for uh, the church. And so we got invited with a handful of pastors. And uh, before we went weeks out, we had to submit all kinds of documents. We had to send, you know, Social Security. We had to send, you know, a driver's license, detailed information about where we live and addresses we, we, we lived before we live where we live now, and just all kinds of details, and they begin to process that. And I promise you, they know more about me than I knew about me at this point. I mean, they look into every little corner, every detail of our life. I told uh, my wife, every purchase that we've had the last, you know, probably three years, they know every single one of those because they're very guarded about who they let in uh, to the White House. And so we, we sent all of that up. And so when you get there, you start going through these lines where uh, Secret Service are honestly not known to be the friendliest of people. We would never let them be greeters here um, at New Beginnings uh, because they are not there to be nice. They're there to make sure that this place is secure. And so you get in this line and there's a guy with no personality, but a lot of muscles and guns. And, um, and he starts asking you questions He's like, what's your name? And when, you, when, when somebody like that asks, you forget your name, right? He's like, what's your name? And I'm like, uh, uh, uh it's Todd, Todd. And I'm looking at Adrian like, is it Todd? I know, I'm not sure if it's me or not. Um, and, and then they're asking you like, what's your address? And you start giving your phone number. And they're like, no, 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 you asked my address. And, and so it's like your birthday. I, I forgot my birthday. So I'm, I'm nervous. So we get through that security and we start making our way through. Well, we're in a long line of pastors. And one of those pastors uh, is, a, is a hero of mine. And I met him a long time ago in ministry. He's a super nice guy, but he's kind of a, just a guy that I've always looked up to. So I'm in line with him. And as we're walking through, typically when you go through a line as a couple, like every station, you go together, right? Well, I'm going through the lines and I'm just kind of now building this relationship with my newfound hero friend and I'm walking through and uh, I'm not listening to the instructions that the secret service are giving, which is not a good idea. And, and so at one point he says, ma'am, you're ready. And he was speaking to Adrian and I just, I'm not listening. I just see her start walking. So I start walking and go to the next security checkpoint and I'm talking to this guy and uh, trying to make a good impression until you get yelled at by the secret service. And so he goes, sir, I'm going to ask you to stop. Sir, I'm going to ask you, to, sir, I'm going to ask you, sir, I'm not going to say it again. And he's like this. And I'm not paying attention. And Adrian looks at me and she says, Todd. I'm like, what? She said, he said, stop five times. And so now I'm embarrassed because I got yelled at by the Secret Service and this guy. And so we finally get through. But you have to go through all of these stations. I mean, there's this body scanner, and I don't even know what they're looking for. But they're, they just, I mean, you just can't even know it's there. You just kind of walk, and they said, stop for a second. And you hear this, and then you, you pass through. But here's the point. They have the tightest security I've ever seen in my life because they want to guard who gets in? Very protected about who gets in. 
In fact, if you cannot get in, it doesn't matter who you think you are, what you have accomplished, how well your reputation is, or what people in Longview, Texas think about you. It doesn't matter what your mama says about you, all right, uh, or granddaddy. You, if you don't have the right credentials, you are not getting in. And it doesn't matter. I could have stopped that guy and said, hey, listen, you don't need to know all that. I'm a pastor in Longview, and, uh, and uh, man, I've got some people that will validate. No, no, they don't, they don't care about that. There is a strict requirement of what they demand as far as credentials, and if you don't have those credentials, you're not getting in. Now, why do I tell that story? Because when it comes to entering into a relationship with God and having heaven as uh, our home in the future we need to understand that there's a lot of confusion in our culture about their credentials needed to get in. That there are a lot of people who think that they have everything that is demanded for them to be able to have access uh, into a relationship with God, to, to know that when they die, heaven is going to be uh, their home, but they are confused. In fact, the studies show us, statistics tell us that 50% of Americans say that they have at least at one point in their life prayed something that we would call the sinner's prayer. That's some sort of confession, acknowledging Jesus. And yet, we know that in our culture, that if 50% of our nation was truly believers, we would not be the nation that we are. That when you see this, when studies showing us 50% uh, profess that they have prayed the sinner's prayer, we also know that the majority of those individuals, they are not connected with a local church, not engaged with spiritual activity in their life and, and engaging with the community of faith. Uh, many, according to surveys, who say that they profess Christ as Lord don't believe that the Bible is true. In fact, they believe the Bible is wrong on much of what it teaches. And if you truly examine the, the life of the majority of people in our nation that would say, hey, they are followers of Jesus, what you would discover is that the majority of them, their life looks no different than a non-believer. But if you were to ask them, do you have a relationship with God? Are you going to heaven when you die? They would give you their reason of why they think the credentials that they hold are good enough. And the reality is they've never met Jesus. That's a massive hurdle that we've got to overcome if we're going to be serious about taking the one to the people around us. The other hurdle we have is the good old boy, good old girl syndrome in our nation. And you know what I'm talking about, because East Texas, this is where we are, right? Like, I believe that, 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 that in D.C. right now, there's, we did a mission trip there. People are lost. They know they're lost. They're not interested in Jesus, but they, they're honest about that. But here, everybody thinks they're saved, even though they're not, because they're good people. You ask people, you know, hey, listen, you know, tell, me, tell me about your relationship with God. Oh, I'm good with God. Well, tell me why you're good with God. And they start going through the list of morality and good choices. And, man, I pay my taxes. I pay my bills. I treat my wife well. I'm faithful to my husband. I, my kids are, you know, I work hard for a living. I salute the flower. All these things, they would go through the list to, to give their credentials. And it's all based upon I'm just a good guy or I'm just a good girl. So if we are going to get serious about engaging that culture who is confused about what it demands or requires for them to have access into a relationship with God and to have heaven as their future, then we have got to be clear when we engage them and what that looks like. We have got to know and be anchored in it. And that's where we find ourselves in the text this morning. John chapter 3, Jesus is going to have a conversation with a man who thinks he has access to God, who thinks he has access to heaven and Jesus is going to explain to him uh, what it means to be truly saved and to truly have the credentials needed to enter into a relationship with God. So if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you're there, say, I'm there. 
All right, good. I thought you were dead there for a moment, but now you're with me. All right, John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. This is the first Nick at night right here. Nicodemus coming at night. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher uh, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. Now, we learn a lot about this man by the name of Nicodemus, this one that Jesus is going to engage. The first thing we learn is that he's a Pharisee. It said there's a man. He was, he was from the Pharisees. The Pharisees was an elite group of religious leaders in the day of Jesus. About 6,000 of them lived in this region at the time of Jesus, and, and Nicodemus was one of them. These men were devoted to obeying God's law. Uh, within Judaism, uh, the Jewish tradition and structure, uh, there would have been 613 laws or commands that come from the Old Testament that they uh, were going to strive to follow every day. Uh, there were 248 don't commands, and then there were 365 do commands. So every day, um, you know, if you, if you were just a person in Judaism, you would be pursuing, I've got to avoid the don'ts, and I've got to do the do's, and I've got to get uh, my life together. And the Pharisees were the best at it. They were committed. They were devoted. These were men who said, to the best of our abilities, we're going to obey not some of them, but all of them. Now think about that. We have a difficult time with 10, right? Most of us don't even know the 10 that we're trying to live up to. These men, 613, and they were devoted to obeying every single one of them. In fact, if you were going to become a Pharisee, one of the things you had to do is to, to declare an oath in front of three witnesses that you would, for the rest of your life, obey all 613 of the commands and all of the commands that were nuances of the commands. And here's what I mean. So, for instance, we know that one of the commands are to obey the Sabbath. So you got to obey the Sabbath. Anybody heard of that? You know, honor the Sabbath day. Keep it what? Keep it holy, right? So they knew that. And so they were so devoted to obeying that command that they had laws in place that helped them obey that law. And so they would ask questions like, well, I mean, if we're going to honor the Sabbath day, is tying a knot on the Sabbath day work or is it not work because we don't want to dishonor the Sabbath day? And the answer would be yes and no. So if a man was going to tie a rope on a bucket to lower it to get water out of the well, then that would be considered work. But if a woman was going to tie a knot in some of her clothing, then that would not be considered work. And so they had all of these nuances. So they found ways to skirt around it. If you tied a bucket of water to a woman's clothing, then she could get the water and it wouldn't be work. So you see, this is crazy, right? But these men were devoted to this. I mean, they were devoted to the details of the law. They were, they were Pharisees who were highly devoted to obeying the law. He was also a ruler of the Jews. Now, here's why, why that's important. So there were about 6,000 Pharisees, but the rulers of the Jews was a, an elite group of special forces of religious people called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was, uh, was the rulers of God's people at this particular day, 70 people plus the high priest. And they were like the Supreme Court of their day. They were the ones that governed God's law, governed God's people, were the rulers and the final authority in all things uh, political or religious in regards to uh, the God's people. And so not only was he a Pharisee, now we know that he is a ruler. He is a part of that elite group of authoritative figures. But then later on in verse 10, Jesus refers to him as a teacher of God's people. So now he would have been in like the most elite group of people who have been given the opportunity not just to know the law, obey the law, but actually teach others how they can know the law and how they obey the law. Now here's the point I'm making. This was, man was highly religious. 
He was super spiritual. He is one of the best men you'll ever be around. In fact, we even see in the text that he's a seemingly good guy. He approaches Jesus with great respect, calls him a teacher or a rabbi, and honors him by saying, I know that you're from God. And so not only is he a man who's a a Pharisee, he's a ruler, he's a teacher, but he's also a man who has a high view of Jesus. And here's the point. If you were to think of Nicodemus, here's the category you would put him in. He would be a combination of Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. This is a a super spiritual man. But I want you to notice what Jesus says next in the story. John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus answered him. And I love this. You know why I love this? Because Nicodemus didn't ask a question. I love it when Jesus answers questions either that we don't know that we're asking or that we should be asking that we're not asking. So Nicodemus comes to him and says, hey, I know you're a teacher, you're a rabbi, you're from God. And Jesus just interrupts him and says, and says, and Jesus answered him. And then he says this, he gets to the heart of it. He goes straight to the core issue in Nicodemus's life. And he says this, truly, truly, in other words, listen up, listen up. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, why is this important? The kingdom of God, this reference here would be a reference to Nicodemus of what we might think of as heaven. For the Pharisees, their desire, the greatest longing of their heart was for the day for the kingdom of God to come, for God to restore all things uh, once more, where everything would be under the rule of the Messiah. And the Pharisees, every single day, were yearning and desiring for the kingdom of God to come. And so this is what they were looking forward to. This would be the equivalent of us thinking about what heaven's going to be like when, when everything is restored and Jesus, our king, reigns forever. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this is a massive dilemma for Nicodemus, and here's why. Nicodemus believed that because of he was a Pharisee and because of his obedience to the law, that he had all the right credentials to enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, when Jesus looks at him, here's in essence what Jesus is saying to him. Nicodemus, you're not getting in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you're not getting in. Now, this would have been a shocker for Nicodemus and anyone else who heard it. Because if you were going to make a list, I'm going to make a list of anybody I think is going to get into heaven and is going to have a relationship with God. Nicodemus would have been in the top three on your list. When you're just like, when I think about what it's going to take for someone to go to heaven and experience eternity to have a relationship with God, what are the things that person's going to look like? You would think Nicodemus is a shoe-in. He is in for sure. And Jesus looks at him and says, Nicodemus, you're not getting in. You think you're good, but your good is not good enough. You don't have the right credentials to enter into a relationship with God and see the kingdom of God. And this would have been a blow to Nicodemus. You don't have what it takes. You don't have the right credentials. Um, Many of you parents know that we have kind of a tight policy when it comes to dropping off our kids and picking them up here at New Beginnings. I see a lot of y'all with uh, name badges on. And uh, I appreciate you guys letting us over the years make changes on the security because we love your kids and we want them to be safe while they're here. And we want you to know that they're safe. And so for some of you, it's an inconvenience. Uh, others of you, you're very grateful for it. But just thank you for participating with that. But when we started making these changes a few years ago, we, we kind of started in the check-in system, check-out system. And you had to have the name tag. Now you wear the name tag, but we had to hold them before. And, and when you would go, there would be someone here that would see the tag. Then they would go find your kid with the matching tag and bring the kid, and unless you had the tag and they matched up by this individual, you didn't have the right to leave with the kid. 
And if you lost your tag, then they had to find someone who could verify and, and make all the exchanges. And so we put this plan into place. One of the things that we said is there, no one, no one gets a free pass, not even the pastor. And I'll never forget the first week that I showed up with, to pick my kids up with no name tag. I'm in this line with everyone else and kind of chat. We get there, and the person who is taking the tags, I know very well. They've been a part of the church for years. I've got a relationship with them. I get there, and I'm like, here, I'm p- here to pick you up. I don't know which kid it was, Micah or Noah or somebody. And they said, uh, can I see your tag? And I'm like, oh, I forgot the tag. And she's like, I'm sorry, Pastor. I cannot give you your kids without your tag. Well, everybody in line's like, but he's the pastor. And she's like, nope, we cannot give him the child. So Yolanda has to come in, verify who I am, print out a tag, go through all this big exchange. And everybody's like, who's the stranger? Pick all the good guests were like, who's the stranger trying to steal a kid? And it's like, it's the pastor. <laughs> I've never been more proud of our team because I didn't have the credentials. I had to meet the expectations. Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, you're standing in line and you think you have everything you need, but I don't care who you are or what you've done or how obedient to the law that you are or what the other people around the community think of you when they think of you. I want you to know you don't have the right credentials. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here is the first truth I want us to see this morning. It's simply this. Listen, salvation can never be obtained by our own effort and there are no exceptions. Salvation can never be obtained by our own effort, and there are no exceptions. Far too many people live with a false hope that they are the exception. They believe that because they are good people, relatively moral, have religious pedigree, and follow the golden rule, that they are destined for heaven. But in the end, they will be shocked to discover that their good wasn't good enough. Some of you in this room this morning, I want to love you enough to say to you, some of you think that you're getting in on the basis of your mom and dad's faith or your grandparents' faith or the goodness of your own life and your morality and that you are pretty well thought of in the community and you think that you have all the right credentials and you think you are the exception. And I'm here to tell you this morning in love, you're not the exception. Your good will never be good enough. In fact, Isaiah says our goodness, our righteousness is as filthy rags. In other words, you on your best day compared to the holiness of God is, 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 is filthy, dirty, disease-filled rags. This is why Jesus blows the mind of those listening to the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds were gathered and Jesus is talking about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And then he makes this statement. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And like we, we hear that and we're like, well, the Pharisees are all bad guys. But that, that's not what would have been thought in that day. The question the crowd would have asked, then, then who can get in? If, if we got to have better righteousness than them, then who can get in? And that was exactly Jesus' point. You have got to have a righteousness that's imputed to you, not something you try to develop yourself. And see, for for, for Nicodemus, it was all about self-effort and self-work and what I'm going to do. And listen to me, our righteousness in and of itself, if it's man-made righteousness, it will be insufficient. It is not the right credentials. It is not good enough. Notice what Jesus says does give access. He's going to clarify this. He says in verse 3, he says, unless, listen to this, unless a man is born again. So there's hope. And Nicodemus can't get in on his own credentials, but there is hope. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he, he says, here's what it takes. It takes being born again. 
Literally, that phrase born again could be translated uh, to be born from above, to be made alive spiritually, um, to, to, to be awakened, to be revived. This is the idea of the word, to be born again. This speaks of the true spiritual condition of the human heart. And this is why our good works is not good enough to get us in. Listen why. Because our good works is nothing more than our self-effort trying to earn enough spiritual currency to get into the kingdom of God. But if the problem is we are bankrupt, if we are spiritually bankrupt because we're dead, there's not enough work we can do to ever be able to obtain that level of righteousness. You see, Paul says it like this. He says, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are spiritually dead. So the issue, listen, is not this. Good people get into heaven and bad people are left out of heaven. Those aren't the categories. It's not good versus bad. According to Jesus and Paul and the rest of the New Testament, it's dead or alive. The problem in the human heart is not that we are corrupt in need of being cleaned up. It's that we are dead and we need to be made alive. The problem is not we are broken, needing to prepare. Listen, we are dead and we need resurrection. Jesus says you've got to be born again. We've got to be made alive. Far too many of us think that we are going to try our very best to clean up ourselves, and, and can I just tell you, and this is a crude uh, analogy, but it's the only one I really have that paints the picture. If you go to a funeral, there's going to be a body in a casket. It doesn't matter how pretty the dress is or how much makeup the person wears, they're still dead. Religion is putting the makeup on. If you go to the hospital, if you're at the hospital and you're coding, you don't need them to give you the four stitches in your finger, Right? You need somebody to say, no, 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 uh, we got to get their heart beating. They're, they're flatlined. We, we can't worry about the, the, the little wounds over here. we got to deal with the core issue. The core issue is their heart has stopped beating, and we got to uh, make it beat again. And that's what you need. Religion bandages wounds, but listen, the gospel revives the heart. It makes us alive again. It, it, it brings resurrection into us. And, and, and of course, Nicodemus, he hears us be born again. He's confused by this. And so Jesus is going to bring some clarity. I love what happens. Look at verse 4. I love, I love the honesty of Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Now listen, some of us, we look at that and we're like, how stupid is Nicodemus? But we've heard it, right? We've heard be born again for years. It's become a kind of cultural term for us. We kind of get the idea that he's talking about salvation. This is the first time the phrase is really heard. And Nicodemus is like, I'm confused. Because everything in, in Nicodemus' life has been about the physical. I've been born a Jew. I'm, I'm physically, I'm being obedient to the law. Everything on the external in my physical life measures up to what I believe God demands. He's not thinking spiritual. And so he asks this question, do I get to enter back in the womb again and be born again? Jesus answered, truly, truly, and he's going to clarify here. Listen to this. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So being born again now, he is saying, means that be born of water and the Spirit. We'll unpack that in a minute. He says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, just physical birth is physical birth. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he says in verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Listen to verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. In other words, he says there's a mystery to the wind because you can't see the wind, you can only see the effects of the wind. And then he says, so it is with the Spirit, um, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus, listen, he can't get past the physical. 
He can't get past the physical. He's saying being born again, and he's thinking physical birth. He's thinking external, and Jesus is talking internal reality. He's talking uh, spiritual birth. He's explaining, Jesus is saying simply to Nicodemus, being born again is not a physical act of the flesh, but a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. It's not a physical act of the flesh. It's a, it's, a, it's a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. So write this down if you're taking notes. Salvation is a supernatural work done in us, not personal effort done by us. Salvation is a supernatural work done in us, not personal effort done by us. When Jesus says, uh, be born again, and then he, he later on says, being born of water and the Spirit. So that's synonymous. To be born again means to be born of water and the Spirit. So what does he mean when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to give you the answer. He, he, I believe Jesus is referring to um, an Old Testament passage, Ezekiel chapter 36. Let me read to you what Ezekiel writes in verse 25 through 27. Ezekiel is describing the new covenant that the Messiah, that Jesus is going to usher in. And this is what he said is going to happen on that day. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. In other words, there's going to be a complete removal of sin and washing away, a covering of, of sin. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I'm going to remove your dead heart and I'm going to give you a beating heart. I'm going to move the heart that's hardened by sin. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that's sensitive to the things of God, that, that yearns for obedience. That's what he says next. He says, and I will put my spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful. The, the phrase be careful there means to desire. I'll give you a desire to obey my rules. So when Jesus says we've got to be washed with water, this is a reference. When Ezekiel mentioned he's going to wash us with water, this is a reference to the blood of Christ that will cleanse us from our sin. Jesus is saying to be born of, the, of water means that you are born of the cleansing that Ezekiel was telling us about, that there would be a day where the blood of Christ would, would wash us and cleanse us. It would cover our sin and it would, it would make us new. It would take away the stains of sin and erase them forever. And then he says you must be born of the Spirit. This is the idea of having the heart transplant, that the old heart is taken away and there's a new heart that's given. And now the Spirit of God lives in us so that now our heart beats for the things of God. Our desires are different. And this is what it means to be born again. Listen to me. Born again does not mean you walked an aisle and you prayed a prayer and you got dunked. It means that you came alive spiritually, which says that my heart now beats for the things of God. I am not the same person that I was before. I am somebody brand new. And here's the reality. This is the aim of the gospel. The aim of religion is fear-based obedience for the purpose of approval. Are you with me? The aim of the gospel is grace-based repentance that leads to a changed life where now we pursue God because we have his approval in Christ. God is not interested in followers who pursue him, listen, like slaves, but rather followers who love him like sons. That we would uh, have our heart transformed in such a way that we would have a yearning and a heartbeat that we would long for the things of God. This is why Jesus says what he says about the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural work the Holy Spirit does. It blows through our life. And he says this is a mystery just like the wind blowing. You don't see the wind but you see the effects of the wind. 
You know where it's been, and you kind of see it moving, but you can't see it itself. He says, so it is. The Holy Spirit blows in our life, and you can't see the Spirit, but the effects of the Spirit are undeniable. A few weeks ago, we had um, a tornado here in town. I'm not going to say straight-line winds like they told us. It's not straight-line winds. It was a tornado, all right? Everybody agree on that? So we had, we had a, I don't care what they say, it's, it was a tornado, came through, a funnel cloud is a funnel cloud, all right? And so um, this tornado blew through and, and left a lot of destruction. Now, I was not over in the Judson area when the tornado came through. I was there a few hours later. And so while I did not see the wind, I saw the effects of the wind. There was no mistaking the fact that, it, that something powerful blew through there. Why? Because it invoked a definitive change Something was different because it was there. How in the world then could people who say, man, I have come to encounter the saving work of Jesus, that I have come to know him and the spirit of God has moved in my life and yet their life not reflect that the Holy Spirit had been there. And their life just continued to be lived the same and just the hopes of heaven being hinged on the fact that I prayed a prayer and I went to church and I got dunked and man, nothing changed in their life beyond that, but they're claiming I'm going to heaven and the reality is they've never experienced new birth. Because when the Holy Spirit, how in the world could something as powerful as the Holy Spirit of God blow through your life and leave nothing changed? We have a lot of people with false credentials. And this doesn't mean our life is perfect, by the way. But it does mean it's different. There'd be a new heart that beats for the things of God. I just, I'll never forget when I was 16, I gave my life to Jesus. I was rebellious, running from God on a destiny. I don't even want to know where I would have ended up continuing to go that direction. Heard the gospel my entire life, and I thought I was the exception. I thought, you know what, I mean, I know my life isn't where it needs to be, but man, there's certainly, I mean, my mom and dad are faithful in church, my, my family is church people, I'm in church every week, and I know I've got these areas over here, but I'm not as bad as other people, and so I'm going to go ahead and live like this, and I thought I was the exception, but I'll never forget the day that I was in church, and the pastor preached a message, I don't even know what the message was on, don't know the text, I know that the Holy Spirit of God blew through my life. And I remember crying out saying, I need to be saved. And I'm telling you right now, my life changed radically in that moment. Now, the same sin struggles that, that I struggled with before then continued in my life for some time. And there are even still some sin tendencies that will raise up that was a part of the old man. But I'll tell you this, there was something different in the way that I saw that sin. I couldn't explain it, but there were things that I joyfully engaged in with no remorse, no guilt, no, no even thought about that the moment that that happened in my life, I could no longer enjoy those things anymore. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God blew through my life and I was born again. In the last 25 years, there's been an ongoing evidence of his work blowing through my life. We must be born again. So how do we experience this? That's the question. Look what Jesus says here. I love this. He, he continues in this passage of Scripture. A lot of times we, we stop the story and we forget that John 3.16 and, and all that God says there, Jesus says there, is tied to the story. Look what he says here. John 3, verse 13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The, word, the phrase Son of Man is an Old Testament reference to the Messiah. So Jesus in this way is talking about himself descending. He is the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. Now listen to verse 14 and 15. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, may be saved, may see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus does something here. He's talking about being born again. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does that leaves us different. And then he explains how we experience that. He uses an analogy. He tells a story of the Old Testament. He uses kind of a phrase that everyone in that particular day would have understood. In Numbers chapter 21, there is a story uh, when God's people were making their way out of Egypt into the Promised Land in those years of wandering in the Exodus, they rebelled against God in a very serious way which was kind of the story of the Exodus. And so the consequence of their sin, God wanted to show them that there's consequences of their sin, that your sin, there, there's, a, there's a result of it. And he, he sends fiery serpents to come and bite the people. When the fiery serpents bite the people, it's called fiery because it's a very painful, severe pain. And eventually the people would, be, uh, would die. They would, they would die because the, the venom was so bad. that So th this was sweeping through God's people. And there was no hope of having any kind of medicine that would heal them. They got bit, they were in pain, and they would die. But Moses cried out to the Lord, and God in his grace and mercy said, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to provide for them something they don't, they don't deserve. So he tells Moses, he says, I want you to take bronze and melt it down, and I want you to make a bronze serpent, and I want you to take that serpent, put it on a pole, and I want you to hoist the pole up for my people, and I want you to tell them that those who have been bitten and who are dying, there is no hope for them apart from my provision and my grace. I have given them a way for them to have healing, and if they'll just look to the, to the pole and look to the serpent, they will be healed. They didn't deserve it. I mean, they rebelled. They, they deserved to die because of their sin. But God in his grace and mercy says, I'm going to make a provision. But here is the only condition. You've got to turn and see the pole. And looking to the pole was a de declaration by the individual that I've been bitten by this serpent. I'm going to die apart from God's provision. But I believe that God has provided a way for me to be healed. And so by faith, I look to the pole. And so God's grace with faith, God's provision... They were healed. Jesus says in the same way that that happened in Numbers 21. He says in the same way, the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, another word to use there to help us get the picture and the connection is whoever would look to him would have eternal life. Here's the, the third truth I want you to write down, and don't miss this. Salvation is initiated by grace and implemented by faith. It is initiated by grace. It is God's love and mercy that though we are sinners and deserving of God's judgment, we have been bitten by the viper of sin, and death is what we deserve because of that. God has initiated his grace so that we might be saved, that we might be born again, but it is implemented by faith. So why does Jesus use this analogy of the serpent on the pole in comparison with the Savior on the cross? Because the serpent throughout the Scripture symbolizes the curse of sin, the curse of sin and its consequences. Remember the serpent in the Garden of Eden? You're going to see that serpent again in Revelation. The serpent symbolizes that. 
and Jesus will be lifted on a pole and he will become the curse of sin for us. And though we have been bitten by the serpent, Jesus will receive the venom and die in our place. And so Jesus on the cross being lifted up, here's what we see. We have no hope apart from God's grace allowing Jesus to be provided to stand in our place to do for us what we could not do so that in him the venom of sin might be removed and Jesus could take our place. This is overwhelming. Could you imagine being bitten by a snake and the doctor saying to you, I have the antidote, but you have to take it. And you're going, well, I believe the antidote will heal me, but I'm not going to take it. You'd be like, you're dumb, right? Some of you in this room, you, you, you know you are sick with sin and you know Christ died for your sins, but you have refused to look so that you would be healed. And you say, well, why would God do this for us? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Why would God place his son on the pole and become the curse of sin for us so that we who deserve to die might live? Why would he do this? Why would he die in our place? Because God loves us and because he loves us, he gave us his son so that if we would believe, if we would look to him, which means I'm not looking to my family upbringing for my uh, credentials. I'm not looking to my good works. I'm not looking to religion. I'm not looking to spiritual behavior. I'm not looking to anything. I'm looking to the cross because in the cross, that's my only hope. And I find in the cross what religion cannot give me, and that is forgiveness and and wholeness and access into a relationship with God and the eternal life that I'm longing for. Jesus is simply telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you've got to stop looking at Judaism and you and your reputation and your perfect obedience to the law, and you've got to get your eyes off of that and get your eyes on me. You know what's great about the story of Nicodemus? We see later on in the scripture that he gets saved, he he is born again, and his life is forever changed. And that same thing can happen to you in this room if you've never experienced it. That same transformation can happen to you, but it requires for us to stop trusting in the credentials that we've trusted in and trust in Jesus. Uh, I was reminded this week of a a biography that was written about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century British pastor, um, maybe one of the most influential preachers next to the Apostle Paul the world has ever known. And um, in a, this biography, he tells the story of his own salvation. And this reference reminded me of it. I want to read it to you. Uh, Charles is telling his own story. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was on my way to a certain place of worship. He says, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In the chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I heard about the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made the people's headache. I love that. 
But, I did not, that did, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I didn't care how bad they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I supposed. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of the sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that a preacher should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. You can relate, I know. But he was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had very little to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but it did not matter to me. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now, look and don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your finger or your foot. It's just look. Well, a man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said with his broad accent, I don't know what that means other than probably uh, he talked like an East Texan probably. He says, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find the comfort there. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. Uh, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me and rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. In other words, he, he had nothing else to say. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and dare I say, with so few present, he must have known that I was a stranger. And fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all of my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. He says, well, I, I did, but I did not, had not been accustomed to having remarks about my personal appearance being made from the pulpit. However, it was a good blow. It struck me right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hand, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw it once, the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was possessed with this one thought. Like the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. I, I looked until I almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith by which alone to look at him. Oh, that someone would have told me this before. To trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered, and now I can say, Ever since by faith I saw thy stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be until I die. How incredible is that? Some of you this morning, you need to look and live. You need to recognize that your credentials, 
your best efforts are insufficient for you to enter into a relationship with God and to see the kingdom of God, to see heaven when you die. And you need to stop trusting in that and simply look to Jesus and be born again. Some of you through the message this morning, the Lord has convicted you because you've had false hope and right now what's happening in your life is the foundation that you've been standing on that's a false hope has been removed because the truth is you might have been religious but you've never been born again. And if that is you this morning, my appeal to you in a moment as we stand and we sing and we worship and we'll have encouragers here at the front, cry out to Jesus. Look to him and be healed and be born again and be saved. Others of you in this room, you have been born again. And your response this morning needs to be really twofold. One is you need to marvel at the grace of God that reaches out and redeems sinners. The second thing is you need to plead with God on behalf of those around you who have never been born again. And for your one and for those who God's placing in your heart and maybe crossing paths with your life, that you would ask God, God, help me have those conversations where I could say to my friend, my family, my coworker, person in my neighborhood, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God and share with them the good news of hope. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. And uh, just bow your heads. I'm going to pray over you, and then we're going to sing. If you need to be saved today, we are here and we're available. And, and those who have been saved, just marvel at the grace of God and plead on behalf of those who have never tasted it. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you, and I thank you now as we worship for a few moments, Lord, that you will. I just thank you that you, you speak to our hearts. And I'm asking that you would stir us, God, those who need to be saved. I pray that they could not leave this place with false hope, false assurance, or false credentials, that they would lay that aside and look to Jesus. That's, that's a work that I can't do. It's only by the Spirit of God blowing into their heart. And I'm praying now, Spirit of God, that you would move in this way and you would revive the heart and awaken to life. And Father, for those of us who know you, let us worship you in response and let us be broken for those who have yet to taste it. We, we lay this moment before you. In Jesus' name.